This is a live recording for the Coot Street podcast, the first that has been done since, well, Chicago when we failed to actually put it out, and then a couple of years back before that. The famous and Lost podcast, which is still echoing around the yes. hotel somewhere. But, but we will kick off uh, properly in a minute with the actual podcast, but since we have, you're, all here, you're all here live, uh, just quickly to introduce, we have Kids Johnson, who is joining us on the podcast who's wonderful and fantastic and is one of our guests of honour. Guest of honour. And we have Dan the End, Jeffrey Ford, who's also joining us on the Hello. podcast, long-time friend. And there's Gary and me. <laughs> and nominally, we will be attempting the topic, the art of narrative. Now, I don't know quite what that means, but I will do the introduction. I'll throw to Gary, and we will see where we go. Are we all ready? That was your chance. Well, oh, oh, oh. Dun, dun. Have we have we started? It's yet? like Waldorf and Statler, and Statler fell asleep. Am I wrong right. about that? Is it five after? I don't know. I'll just go ahead. I don't yes. care. Do we start now? Two. What are they starting now? This room. And now, oh. coming to you live from the Chicago Ballroom in Kansas City, Missouri. Oh, not Kansas. What the hell is that about? In Kansas City, Missouri, it is Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf with very special guests, Kids Johnson and Jeffrey Ford on the Coochie Podcast. Hey. And we're back in Kansas City. Do you put City. Echo in now? <laughs> yeah. So one of the reasons we asked Kidge and Jeff to join us on this is because they've both been writing interesting fiction at the edges of fiction, I guess is a way of putting it. Uh, Kidge, a, a, one of our guests of honor, whose new book, The Privilege of a Happy Ending, has been out for hours, uh, <laughs> days maybe even. Literally. And one of the things that I st struck me as interesting about some of the stories in that and a number of... Jeff's stories over the years, is when does, when does a series of images and ideas become a story, become a narrative, and does it have to become a narrative? In other words, when do things, because there are, there are stories now being published that are lists, that are recipes, that are sets of directions, that are pseudo-historical documents, that I know of one story of Jeff's, for example, which he claims is virtually nonfiction, except for one thing. The honeyed knot is the one I'm thinking. Yeah. So, when does a story become a story rather than something else? Kid. Oh. <laughs> Start with. Oh, I was sort of hoping Jeff would jump in uh, on that since you just mentioned. I can mentioned answer it if you okay, want. Okay. Yes. Okay. Thank you, Jeff. Both of you are going to answer it. Yeah. Uh. What I was going to what I was going to say is that I never know when the story is going to become a story. I just follow the story, and the story takes me to the story. You know what I mean? It's not like I plan it. I build it. I do that bullshit world building and all that stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> I just basically start writing. I get a mood, see a character, follow the character. My, my professor, John Gardner, used to say, see the character, follow the character, and the character will take you to the story. And that's what happens. Sometimes you've got to wait and follow the character for a while. But what happens is then you're not planning anything. And then when the discovery, when you discover the story in the story while you're writing, there's, a, there's that great sense of, uh, you know, surprise and so forth, which then is transferred to the reader, and they, and they feel that sense too. Now, whether a story has to be, an, you know, a straight-up narrative, it, it doesn't. I mean, if you just have a series of images, uh, the, the reader can make a story of those by following, the, you know, a trail through them mm -hmm. uh, and putting the story together in their own mind. I mean, I don't think that there's any rules on it. You know, I mean, I know there's a lot of there's a lot of lists and stuff like that. I mean, that stuff's been around forever. 
uh, all those, you know, six ways of looking at this or whatever, you know, 21. What was the one by uh, the poem? You know, 21 Wallace ways. Stevens. Yeah, Wallace Stevens. I mean, 13 ways so, so that goes, but as far as when does the story become the story, I guess in, innately it always is from the beginning, but you don't, I don't know it. I have to discover the story as I go. I don't know if that helps at all, but... Speaking as somebody who plans a lot. <laughs> um, I think for me, um, and I'm always, I'm always thinking about other ways to tell a story, um, partly because I'm curious about how it operates in our heads. We have trained ourselves to think causally and to think, I mean, I'm super cerebral about this stuff, but you know, we've ta- trained ourselves um, to think causally, but there are other ways to sort experience um, and uh, uh, cause and effect is one way. Chronology is another. You know, it's like this minute leads to next minute. There is a natural thing. Is there causality? Yes, but there's other stuff as well. But there's also geographically. Um, I used to give this example, and I continue to give it, mm-hmm. that I used to drive across country from Seattle to Minneapolis several times a year. And I always hit one gas station in western Montana on more or less the same time in May, same time of the day, and I would get out of my car and I'd be wearing a broomstick lace skirt or a broomstick skirt. And I would get out of the car and the door would slam open because of the hot southern wind. My skirt would blow up around my thighs. And that moment was like the moment one year ago more than the moment 10 minutes later was. So I got to thinking that, you know, we, we sort experience and story is a form of sorting experience. You know, it is... It is a way that we make sense out of causality and uh, with the delights of correlation as well and coincidence. But, um, <coughs> but we, we plan, you know, we think like that, but there are other ways. And so for me, story is always about um, how, how few connectors to what is defined as story does there have to be. You know, what we call a story. Can I write a story? in 17 words that actually has what we would, that somebody would say that's a story, not 17 words, or that's a story, that's a piece of flash fiction, Mm -hmm. which is not necessarily a story. So where are those lines? What is a scene compared to a story? What is a vignette compared to a scene compared to a story? What is a series of beautiful images strung in a string like beads compared to any of those? I think about that all the time. <laughs> I never think about that. I live alone. That. Can anyone tell? <laughs> I, I never think about that because the thing is, is I don't care how close I can get to it by making lists and all that and all the chronology. It's just that if that happens, that's cool. Like that does happen sometimes and it because you get right on the edge of it, right? Mm-hmm. But I don't plan that. It's just like that's the story that's being told. Mm-hmm. I, like the, I yeah. believe that the story is like something almost alive. Yeah. And I, I you know, I follow it. It's, um, uh, it's, uh, my approach to it is almost counterintuitive. Like, you know how, like, when you really want, you're trying to write a story, you want it to be good, you got your hands on the wheel of the car, and you're, like, sweating, and, you know, trying not to mess up going down the road. But my approach is take your hands off the wheel and let the story just take you. And uh, I think uh, that works for me. It doesn't work for everybody, though. Don't I know take that. driving lessons from this guy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah pro tip. <laughs> right. But it sounds like you're stalking your own fiction. Like there's a story out there and you're kind of creeping up on it, but it's always there? I'm not sure if it's always there or not, or I'm discovering it along the way, but they, I have no idea where it is or what it is. A lot of people tell me my stories wind up in places they never saw coming, mm-hmm. but it makes sense at the end, which I, I mean, Sarah Pinska was telling me this one time, you know what I mean? I have no idea about that. 
But yeah, it's much more mystical process. Hmm. But then is there like a point where there's then a mechanical check to this process? I mean, you talk about finding the character, following the character to go to the story. You talk about how much uh, kids you're saying about how much you can remove of narrative to have it still uh, work. Is there a point where you've created the, 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 effectively the first draft of the narrative and you have to go through to look for the points where you need to shore up oh, yeah. just mm-hmm. to make sure that that flow right. of meaning that's happening, whether it's a straight yeah. linear narrative or something else, is there to make it work? Like mm-hmm. there's a, there are key points that you have to get for it to function. Yeah, you polish it and yeah. tweak it somewhat. Yeah. Something yeah. Je- just said just a minute ago, um, you know, about, I mean, and now I just forgot what I was going to say. Mm-hmm. kind of a day, but it'll come back. But no, just thinking in terms of it. Yeah, absolutely. You figure out um, what are the pieces that have to be there. Oh, this is what I was going to say. And it's mm-hmm. the truism in the field, but truism for all of us that we're pattern making animals. And so yeah. uh, we, we will look at the two dots in the line of a power outlet and see a face. Right. We look at the back of a grand car- uh, uh, caravan and we see the cutest little smiling face staring back at us. And don't tell me they didn't think of that. <laughs> so so um, we're used to filling in gaps. And, you know, so to my mind, often what happens is I, I end up uh, getting into something and saying, which pieces can I take out? And some of that's for concision. You know, sometimes you just yeah. want your story to move faster. So you don't need that whole paragraph. What you need is two, two good images and you can get rid of the paragraph. But there's also this sense of, you can take so much away, and the reader, if you give them the right cues, they'll be like, I get it. It's a love story. You don't ever have to say the word love in the story. You don't ever have to show me the two kissing or whatever, because all of the pieces were there for me to fill in the entire background. Um, they say you can, uh, you know, all, a plane is identifiable by three points. Any three points define a plane, and fiction works like that. So to me, I become very reductionist and say, how much can I take out? So a lot of times there's a lot more writing and then it all gets removed. But then I always end up having to put some things back because you do need more than I need because I know what's happening from the inside. But you as the readers need more. So then I'm like, okay, so what is the minimum stuff that I can put back in? And you'll still say, this is a love story or this is a story about anger. or This is a story about talking dogs. The word dog helps. (laughs) (laughs) Is it the same for short? It sounds like we're talking largely about short fiction, but yeah. The same for a novel. Can you follow your instincts all the way through a novel length? Yeah, I have. I I do that. The only thing I do do is a couple of my novels, pretty much all of them are, uh, the the longer ones are uh, historical. I do historical research. Uh And that colors, you know, whatever I come up with in my head. But yeah, I'm just on the go. I just write them as the chapters come, write it down, you know, and uh, hope for the best. (laughs) <laughs> and it always works so well you know what the thing is uh my idea of fiction and this is what i tell my students fiction is not about ideas mm-hmm. all right it could have ideas in it but what fiction is about it's about what happened and what happened what happens and what happens next and that's what it's about mm-hmm. bodies in motion through time mm-hmm. you know what i mean and then if you follow that the story itself will come up with its own meanings and ideas mm-hmm. and stuff like that as you as you detail and go through, depending on the craft, if you could capture those things in the craft, you know. And I feel like we actually would agree absolutely on that. I have a very strong intellectual response to how story operates. And I used to work at Microsoft on reader apprehension. And so there was a lot of work that we were doing about how you collect information from the page, from the screen, from hearing something. 
and what and what happens with that information in your brain once you start you know once you once you brought it on board and so i think about this stuff intellectually but ultimately yeah the story itself is about somebody that you you care about doing things that you're interested in interesting people doing interesting things you know that's what fiction is so i come at it from maybe a different angle but ultimately once the writing starts to happen it's it's uh it's always about you know how who is this person and why are they interesting and what are they going to do next yeah a couple of weeks ago somebody was <clears throat> doing one of these things on facebook where you ask what's your favorite opening line and this was particularly asking what's your favorite opening line from a stephen king story and there were a bunch of classic <laughs> lines i have a favorite opening line from a stephen king story it's the opening line of the mist and it Fits in exactly with what Jeff was just saying. The opening line of The Mist is, this is what happened. Mm, yeah. And, wonderful. And you know what? That's metatextual. Exactly. That's standing exactly. outside the story and inviting the reader in. What? What? Yeah. Ah, hey. Okay, yeah. You know, the what? word hey is what, what it's saying. You know, you know, give me your ears, you know. Right. You know, that is wonderful. What? Or however they pronounce it. I don't know. I read it. But, what? <laughs> I thought you I had no idea what you would Yeah, do it was like, did, what, what's, what did we do? I think Maria Headley's translation of that is bro. 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 We're talking about Beowulf, for those of you who, are, who thought we were talking about Daffy Duck. Quack. Uh, but yeah, it's, 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 it's an attention getting device in Anglo Saxon yo. poetry. Yo. I always interpreted it and translated it as yo. Yo. You know, but but it's and it's interesting because, of course, you know, all of these words have slightly different implications and meanings and stuff. And each of them brings its own context and connotations as well. So bro brings something different than hey. Um, I find that I always find translation is like a really big obsession of mine at the moment. <laughs> you know, that uh, that I was telling you last night, I, I was reading the, the new Odyssey. Yeah. You know, it was Which great. One? I Helen finished Wilson. it. Yeah. yeah. And oh, it was yeah, great. Yeah. And the thing that amazed me, it's very prosaic, I think, in, in a lot of ways. But the thing that amazed me about it is how intricate and complex the story structure is. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, all this, I mean, uh, Odysseus's travels back have already taken place. Right. By mm -hmm. the, he's almost home by the time you come in on it. But then there's, he goes, they have scenes where he goes back into it. The scenes taking place mm -hmm. on, mm -hmm. uh, on Ithaca. And all this stuff is very complex i mean mm -hmm. but uh it just reads like somebody telling you the story and be like oh yeah and this happened on the way back and then just jumping in with things but i was amazed at how uh yeah. how complex it was really yeah i, I, I don't know if that's apropos mm -hmm. of anything right. but i just i read it. that out loud because it was so beautiful i love the plain spoken voice of it do you listen to the audio no i read oh. it aloud oh, did you <laughs> oh that's a good that's good it slowed me down which was good do you find you get a different pleasure from reading and writing narratives that are less traditional, less linear? Because, I mean, there's a lot of people who enjoy straightforward linear narrative. It allows this idea of immersion in story. Whereas when I think of experimental fiction or more experimental approaches to narrative, where you've stripped it away and you've talked about bringing down to bare bones and what actually has to be there, then that, in a sense, denies immersion and delivers something else. Oh, this is, oh, oh, I'm so happy. <laughs> because um, uh, the last five years of my life, I have spent way too much time thinking about immersion versus estrangement. Not using it in the Darko Suvin sense, but the sense that 
um, as we read, um, we fall through the page into the story. We stop noticing the words. The words may still be there and they may still delight us, but ultimately we're there because we want to see what happens next. On rare occasions, we're there because we want to see the next beautiful sentence, but usually we're there because we, we're aghast, we're agog, we want, in, we want to, we're in it. And my definition 10 years ago of a successful story is the one that at four in the morning, you put the book down and you say, God damn it, and I have a presentation tomorrow. Um, and I'm, now I'm not ready. Um, but I think estrangement is the other part of it because the reader is constantly being pulled outside of the story as well. And so I did a lot of like experimental work where I was playing with, you know, be how beautiful can language be before it, before it sucks you out of story? I wrote a porn novel to experiment with this where uh, I was trying to write the highest literary voice I could and then write porn. And it was like a really interesting tension between those two because one or the other always had to, had to tap out. So either the beauty of the language tapped out for the moment of visceral response or the moment of visceral response tapped out for the glory of the language. And uh, so that was an interesting challenge for me. But I think about this a lot, you know, in all my fiction. What is the difference between... You know, and, and more and more of my fiction is about, uh, well, I do love telling a conventional story, a, a conventionally narrated, you put it down a 4 a.m. story. A lot of what I do right now is saying, okay, so how hard can I whipsaw the reader between being utterly thrown out of the story and then utterly sucked in? How fast can I make that transition? How fast can I disrupt their reading experience and then lure them back in? Which is kind of a dick move, I admit. But it's also a really interesting move. I mean, from the outside, it's an interesting literary move. Um, you know, the exploring the limits of estrangement and immersion and what happens inside of us. So I think about that all the time when I'm writing right now. I would say to what Jonathan asked, um, whatever kind of stories I end up writing, uh, a good classic story, well told, nothing beats it. Nothing mm -hmm. beats it. I mean, just a straightforward story. I could think of dozens of them. You know what I mean? <laughs> that are just, uh, you can't top them. They're just so great. Yeah. Uh, it, no matter what kind of pyrotechnics you want to pull, I mean, and you could do some that are really amazing, but if you have like a, like, you know, I'm trying to think of a good story, a good example of a story that's like that. There's a story by Garcia Marquez called uh, The Saint uh, that takes place in Rome where he meets this guy from his hometown who has his daughter's body in like a big cello case he carries around and she's incorruptible, you know, like she's been dead, but she hasn't, her body has not corrupted. And he's trying to get a meeting with the Pope uh, to have her, mm. uh, you know, ordained a saint. It's a great story. And it's just a straightforward story telling about where he lived in Rome, this guy he meets and, you know, but you can't beat that kind of – sometimes they're just too good. You know, the, the old well, way is I mean, the best yeah. way. There was, there was an argument that C.S. Lewis made about mytholo mythological fiction. He was talking about A Voyage to Arcturus. David Lindsay was talking about George MacDonald. Mm -hmm. And he said there's a certain kind of story that is so powerful it can't be told badly. Yeah. Um, oh. And he was, he was talking about stories like Orpheus. There are mm -hmm. lots and lots of really bad versions of Orpheus, but you get the point no matter how Every clumsily time. you're telling. Yep. That's interesting, yeah. And, um, but on the other hand, when you're talking about Garcia Marquez, even in translation, you're talking about some well-crafted sentences. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In other yeah. words, it may be a terrific story, but it's told in a certain language. Right. And yeah. the language has to work as well. Right. I mean, and that's something to think about is that, is the sense that even the most transparently written story, that is a formal decision. The author has made a decision 
whether conscious or it's just their intuitive direction, to tell a story in that voice. There is a voice decision, which is the immersive voice that leans in. I read a lot of mysteries, and I read a lot of mysteries from the 1930s, 1910s through 1940s. And those stories are generally being told very transparently. They're not interested in bells and whistles because these are people, this was a de- what was considered a debased literature mm-hmm. at the time. So if you were, no matter what kind of an Oxford Don you were, if you were writing it, you were picking these beautiful, plain-spoken things. But that was a decision. And that's the thing about you know immersive writing. And you go back to naturalist writing of the 18th and 19th century, where it's a completely different voice, and yet completely immersive in the same way that a scenically written story moder- nowadays would be. And th- another part of this is just that the readers are changing really fast right now. So, I mean, postmodernism, honestly, I've found postmodernist moves in 18th century novels, um, brilliant postmodernist, and not just Tristram Shandy, I'm saying. But, yeah. um, but you see this, and there's so much room for so many different ways to suck the reader in. And one of them is, is you know, experimental voices that, that lure you in, but all voices are, to some extent, an arbitrary decision on the part of the writer for the story. Well, and, and the fact that this is not a new invention probably goes back to what you're talking about with the translation of the Odyssey, with a story that loops in and around itself in a much more complicated way. It's very way. modern. So, yeah. yeah. It's so modern, you know what I mean, in, yeah. in so many ways. Let me tell you about the story. The main story is happening outside of the primary Everybody's timeline. telling it's stories wonderful. in that thing, yeah. you know what I mean? Everybody's making things up, trying to fool each other, mm-hmm. telling stories about stuff that went down. Mm-hmm. They, th- those guys, man, they never, not, they never did anything where they weren't feasting and telling the whole story of something. Yep. You know yep. what I mean? Right. That's true. <laughs> I should ask Jonathan, as an editor of anthologies and at Tor.com, when you get a story that's non-traditional in form, do you have to think, is this something that I can sell to an audience, or do you just make a decision based on your own aesthetic sensibilities? It never comes up. Okay. Uh, no, I mean, what I mean is, if a story works, if, if, if a, a narrative works, it doesn't matter how it right. works. Yeah. It's that it works. True. What I find myself uh, looking for and what I f- find myself disappointed by when I talk to other people who have not responded to the work is, what were those, I mean, you've talked about those stepping stones underneath the narrative that get, the, get you from point A to point B. I mean, if you go and look at, at I'm going to get the name of the story wrong, uh, Kelly Link's story, I think it's 59 Shoes or something, which is basically someone looking through Amelda Marcos's shoe closet and different <laughs> pairs of shoes. But it's like this pair of shoes connects to this pair of shoes, connects to this pair of shoes, and everybody's leaping across a river with bits of lily pad to get from one side to the other. And as long as all those lily pads are where they need to be, and there don't, there don't have to be a lot of them, they just have to be enough to get to the other side, then it works. And I've never found anyone seriously who will contend with, will, will argue with that. One of the things, I guess, as an editor is, and you're not always right because you're just another reader who's trying, is you sit there kind of going, did I see the lily pad? I, I feel like I missed one there. Mm-hmm. Uh, this thing that we get to, because one of the problems in certainly modern genre fiction is ending. You know, your experiment, experimental, experimental narrative still has to end somehow. It has to give mm-hmm. you some kind of intellectual or emotional resonance that brings you to the conclusion. So it's looking for that and getting to that is the thing, not whether people are worried about it. Was that an issue also? Because the title of, of Kidge's book is The Privilege of a Happy Ending, which 
is a critical statement by itself. I mean, you've said this, you said it yesterday. You know, the happy ending depends on where you end the story. Um, and is that... Is, <laughs> That's true. Is, 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 it's is, true. Is, all stories end in tragedy, ultimately. If you go they long enough. They all do. If yeah. you go long enough, every story ends badly. You know, it's a, and, and sometimes that difference is two weeks later when the happy marriage breaks up for the third time. And sometimes the story is, you know, and then she dies alone and dead. <laughs> that, that, was, that was the answer my grandmother always gave whenever she told us a story. And I said, well, what happened to that guy? He goes, he eventually died. He dies. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that's the whole point of the she, privilege she, of the happy ending, too. She, yeah. Yeah. Is that every single time I introduce a character... I tell you how their story ends years later in some cases, because that was the point is that. I like you know, that. Uh -huh. I like yeah. that effect. Yeah. Yeah, and it, was a, and it was a very unsettling effect for the reader. And actually the first time I did it in the story, a lot of people I could, when I would talk to people when it was still being developed would be like, um, that was weird, that, that invasive narration, but then mm -hmm. I settled into it, you know, so a lot of the, I mean, that's the other thing for us to remember as we think about this is that the reader, we train the reader. Um, when we write a story, uh, we train the reader to read that story. Um, sometimes they do it because they already know, you know, they reliably know what this author is going to be like. Mm -hmm. So, you know, every time I pick up a certain kind of, a certain person's stories, I know what I'm getting. But every story does that as well. And we, we give them the rules and then we can transcend the rules, but we can never disappoint with regard to the rules. We can swap the rules for different, for a different understanding of the rules that makes them weirdly wrong-footed but simultaneously satisfied. That's the hope. <laughs> Which doesn't exactly line up with your instinctive thing, or does it? Because no, I said I, I appreciate that effect when I look oh. at it as a reader of somebody else's right. work. You know. Mm -hmm. I mean, it can happen in those, it happens in those stories that I write too, but it's not, mm -hmm. it's not like I plan, I just feel like that's the place to go. Right. Uh -huh. I just feel like that's it, that's where the story is, you know, and you follow the story, you follow the story to wherever, the, the story will take you, you know, you just have to let it go. There's so much BS in MFA programs <laughs> about like all these, ter the terminology and everything. I remember my teacher saying to us, you know, all those things you think you got to do, you don't got to do any of them. All you got to do is tell a story. You've been doing it since you were three years old. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And people get so hung up on, like, you know, the terminology that they have to make you read 30 books, all this other stuff, when in reality, wouldn't it be great if these students just wrote an amazing short story in a semester? I what would be wrong with that? Yeah. But see, the departments have to, like, justify themselves to the rest of the school because they feel guilty about the fact that they're doing something that's beautiful and fun. Well, and the rest of the, and the, rest of the school resents them sometimes, too. So that's part of it, too. But I agree with you. And I teach in an MFA oh, yeah, program. Well, uh, and yeah. I think it's a lot of it is BS because it's like nobody became a better writer because they can tell you the Marxist interpretation of their own literature. Nobody can be a better writer <laughs> just because of that. They become a better writer by writing a story you care more about. And if they have strong, they have a strong will to write a story with a Marxist theme, they come up with a theme that turns out to be Marxist. You know, they come up with a story and characters and problems that convey what they want. But nobody ever wrote a story that said, I'm going to write a compelling story about, you know, Lacanian politics and had it work. Well, you know, still, when I say that, uh, despite it, great writers come out of those programs and there are great teachers in them, you know. Oh, you, right. you mentioned John Gardner, for example, and he's got a book on fiction, which is not an MFA-style book at all. 
They hardly had any MFAs when he wrote that. Well, yeah. I, yeah. Take, I mean, that's why I don't he's have pre-MFAs, one. He's pre-MFAs, yeah. There was nothing around, mm-hmm. you know? I, I guess my... My defense of academia is that you can, <laughs> you can learn stuff, maybe not in an MFA program. You learn stuff by studying history or archaeology or French or yeah. physics mm-hmm. or whatever, and that informs your fiction. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we could, we could probably trash I MFA I agree with programs. that, yeah. And, I mean, I think ultimately, you know, I came in late. I started, I, became, I went to grad school at 50. You know, I got my degree. I became a college professor. But before that, I'd already been teaching writing for 15 years. And I had a very sort of tactical approach. You know, what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, once we get past the whole, I want to be a great writer, I want to make a living, whatever, you know, whatever our professed thing is, your goal is to write a story. So let's write a story. You know, let's let's write a goddamn story, people. Um, and that is where the story happens, is when people actually do the work. If an MFA makes somebody write and makes them write better, then that's great. But not everybody, you know, there's no strategy that works for everybody. Yeah, I'm just saying I hear things, you know, from the programs that I just, I can't believe. One thing, and I talked about before, world building. <laughs> for Christ's sake, I mean, what, like, where's my wheelbarrow, my pickaxe, and my shovel? You know what I mean? <laughs> and what you're doing is you're using your imagination, which is not a mechanical act. You're not constructing anything. It's not architectonic. And so it gives people the wrong idea about how to go about it. Plus, you have a young writer and you say, all right, first you got to build the world. And they're like, all right, I'm going to go work at McDonald's. It's so much easier, (laughs) you know, right? Such a stupid term. Wasn't it M. John Harrison whose definition of world building was the great clomping foot of nerdism? Yeah, that was it. See, that's the thing. And that's my my objection to that term is that, I mean, I I played role-playing games before I was a writer. And I worked at TSR and Wizards of the Coast, and I wrote game materials and stuff like that. And world building is is a separate skill that is not fiction. So yes, you can sit down and write 250 pages about your world. That's technically world building. Mm. But that is not fiction yet. And by the time you've done that, you've, you've, you've forgotten that you were here to write a story. If you're here to build a world, that's a different skill, and that's an interesting skill. And like Hal Duncan writes interesting stuff. You know, like... People write interesting things that are world building, but that is not the same thing as storytelling. And we forget that. And we get like super obsessed with the world building. It's like, then just design a game because that's the natural habitat of world building. It also, it also uh, presupposes an idea that this is a mechanical process, yeah, you know, which yeah. I think is a real detriment to uh, yeah, anybody who thinks top starting down out writing, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, it touches on this idea that sort of writing is something can be right or wrong, that it can be good or bad, that can be taught or not, that it has rules. And it, I mean, it's been my own feeling that because I get people come, and I'm sure you do, people who want to write, they want to become better, so they come to you and they go, what are the rules? And and, the, and you say, well, you know, I don't think there are rules. And they go, but what are the rules that, that I can't break? Don't break these rules. You're going, the bottom line is there really is only one rule, mm-hmm. as far as I can tell. Don't bore the reader. <laughs> I mean, it's true. Well, yeah, I mean, Don't I was, bore the reader. That's yeah. your job. Keep true. them reading till you get to the end. That is your only job as a writer. But it's like you me, may also do things. All but. your entire library of writing books could be be boiled down to, it has to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as long as it works, it's fine. You can do anything. Yeah. And there's too much sort of structural thinking about it and trying to... I mean, I've spoken to... I have a friend, who I won't name, who went from being an academic to being a writer a fiction writer, and they approached their fiction writing initially like an academic. 
they did all of the architectonic kind of work you're talking about. Mm -hmm. They constructed a plot structure in their mind. They, they, and they, you could tell what they were doing was in attempting to build the arc of a story, they were creating in bits and pieces all the bits they could string together and then string this bit together and string this bit together. And what didn't happen is it never came to life as an actual story because they were never actually chasing the story itself. It didn't work because it was still yeah. born uh, with all that structure and overthinking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, and I think that's, that's an interesting moment because I've always said that I can teach a room full of engineers to write workable stories. Every single engineer who comes into a class I teach or into a workshop I do, they come up with a functional story. Is it a good story? That's a different question. You know, it's like you can, uh, there are conditions that make a story more accessible and those can be passed on, but it still may not be a good story because ultimately the real work of storytelling is, is the stuff that isn't mm -hmm. in the rules, that isn't the, you know, it's like ideally we see, you know, your words are you know, things that happen to have consequences, you know, if, if in fact that is one of your rules. But yeah, it's, it's very interesting to think about this. It's like you, storytelling and the tools of storytelling are two different things, really. I, I know I've got a good story because I get this giddy feeling yes. inside. <laughs> like I'm laughing out loud. It might even be a sad story, but I'm just laughing at the amazing thing that's going on <laughs> here that I, I'm not really controlling. It's happening before me. But I get that, I get a giddy sense in me. I know, all right, this is going, I'm having fun with it. You know what I mean? I'm mm -hmm. laughing out loud and I'm, I'm like, you know, rubbing my hands together. And, <laughs> and for me, because I, I never enjoy writing, really, but there is a moment that all of a sudden I feel a little dizzy when I'm like, <laughs> I, I am on something I don't, uh, I don't quite understand, but, you know, yeah. I'm on the ride. So That's I'm always staying. a good sign, right? It yeah. is a good it's, sign. Yeah. You know, the, the vertigo is a good sign that the story yeah. is, is going to be a good story. Yeah. Um, so for me, I don't cackle and laugh, but there are moments like word choice moments that I, I will delight myself in. It's, it's not I even love a, that. you know it's Can not like a again? delight it's not like a delight in your own genius I mean that has nothing to well, do with sometimes it sometimes it is it has a delight for me it's a delight in the fact that this thing's happening yes like it's mm -hmm. it's happening before your eyes are, yeah it's like watching and, a science experiment yeah. chemistry you know all of a sudden it's yellow and it's shooting flames yeah. and you're like I knew this was going to happen but I didn't expect it well I, I, I was uh, at a convention once talking to, just to get back to the world building thing because we're talking about Fiction, and then we're talking about good fiction, and then there's the other question of talking about commercial fiction, successful fiction. There were two writers, both of them, one of them, let me see, one of them is an absolute genius, one of them is an enormously successful fantasy writer, and we were at lunch <laughs> together. And the fantasy writer was explaining the whole world-building thing. You spend de days, weeks doing research, working out geology, working out the astronomy, if it's a science fiction thing, do, and, and, and then you start building a culture, and within that culture, a character emerges, and that's all you have to do. Once you get the world built, the character will just emerge. The, the other writer was saying, I have no idea what you're talking about. All I can do is think of a character and wonder where he's going, and that's all he worked with. They had no sense at all of ever connecting. They just went over each other's heads. You know, there's a lot of background stuff. Uh, but, but the guy who did the world building was making a lot more money selling books than the... <laughs> A very literary, multiple award-winning, brilliant fantasy writer who is a much better writer. Yeah, but then, Gary, when I hear you say that, you know what really occurs to me? Hmm. Somebody has a different path of getting towards the point where yeah. they can start telling a story. There's That's a true. million different ways. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You, know who, you know who plans a lot? Uh, I, was, I was describing my, this process I have to Ted Chang, 
And he was mm-hmm. like, that's not me at all. Yeah. He didn't say that yeah. exact, those exact words, but he said, that's not for me. And the other you know thing. what I mean? Man, look, yeah. he, he did all right. So there's got to be a, any, there's got, you just have to understand what, what your particular process is. Yeah. You, that's really important is to figure out what it is you. So when people take classes with me, I tell them, don't sit there and take down notes on everything I say. Try to see if this fits in with what you like to do or what you mm-hmm. try to do. You know, if it helps you to get where you want to go, because otherwise uh, they're going to come up. They need to come up with their own individual approach to telling a story. You know, that's the only way to really do it. Yeah, I you, think. you can't simulate somebody else's experience. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, and I mean, one thing that we we talk about, you know, writing stories as though it happens in a vacuum, but it actually happens embedded in our experience as human beings. So, you know, it's like the person who says, oh, I just start with the character and then the world evolves as my, I have, my character walks out the door and now I see the street. Mm. And now that I've seen the street, I know what's happening with the sewage. And now that I know what's happening with the sewage, two chapters later when they walk in the street, they're going to step in the shit. You know, so there's a, um, but what came into that is all of the background of their experience of what it is like to walk out into a street. You know, they, they didn't, we're not able to do that in isolation that happens because they already were aware of these things. The person who plots mm. from the top down, if they write a good story, which is not always the case, um, you know, it's like in their case, their understanding of character is already defined by every story they've ever read, every time they've ever thought of people as characters mm. or characters as entities. So they can do all the world building they want. And when the moment comes to say, I'm going to insert a character all of the already in the back of their brain tools for building character just pop into place and they say, and of course, this is the most compelling character for this environment. But all of that is because there's so much more to us than just the fact that I'm writing this story mm. today. Um, and that's why the broader our reading, the broader our interests, the better our writing is going to get. I never tell people to read books about writing. You know, to me, it's like if you want to learn how to write, go read a book on developmental psych. It'll be better for you. Yeah, I'm not into those those books. Me either. either. I, never, I use I probably, one for a class. Maybe they'd helped. be good. I don't know, but I never read. Them. I know one, one of the. I, I did an article a few years ago about autobiographical writings of various, uh, mostly science fiction and fantasy writers. And the one story that popped up again and again, and and very diverse writers, but writers who are very innovative for their time, and as diverse as Cordwainer Smith and Octavia Butler and R.A. Lafferty, there were three that come to mind. <laughs> all said at some point that they never learned what they weren't allowed to do. They didn't know right. that they were breaking rules. And if they had they known about rules, they may not have written the stories. They, they may not have written stories at all in the case of Paul Einberger. Yeah. yeah. No, that's, that's a great point. Because you know what? One of the things that I find is when you get to that point where uh, you know um, you have a sense that, that this, this is not like cool or the thing that people would do, and then you got to go for it. And when you go mm-hmm. for it, it works a lot of times yeah. that way, you know. Mm. But you got to get past that. You have to have a lot of courage, uh, you know. And stubbornness. Yeah, <laughs> and not worry about the the other stuff. But going for it is like one of the big things, you know. When you reach a point like that, you know, oh, this could get me in trouble. Ah, fuck it, I'm going <laughs> fuck for it. it. I'm doing you know? it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see if we can do this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole, all of this thinking that I was just outlining about, you know, immersion and estrangement. All of that is me just saying, oh yeah. You know, because all of these show don't tell, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, yeah, are you sure? You know, let me find out because I'm, mm-hmm. you know, a nerd's daughter. 
I try it and I see if it works or not. But yeah. ultimately, everything is about me having a chip on my shoulder and saying, says who? That's yeah. all my writing, right. all of it. That was another quotation I heard, and I can't remember who said it, but basically the statement was the writer's only responsibility is to get away with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing, I, one thing I will say about my approach is that it gets more daunting as you get older because if you're relying on your mind and like it's, you know, the way it moves and stuff like that, it gets jumbled sometimes. <laughs> it gets more jumbled sometimes as you get old. But is mm-hmm. it that or is it that you've learned more? I mean, you've got more, more, you know, muscle memory, more things you've you know, tried to do. And before you even consciously know you do it, you're filtering through all this extra stuff about how you're going to go about doing a thing. Yeah, maybe. I don't yeah. know. First but it's more fun when I'm now. Yeah. It's more fun. Even yeah. if I screw up, it's not, you know, it's not a problem. I remember Ursula saying at the beginning, you're all ideas and no craft, and then you're all craft and no ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a big fan of her writing. I find her very distant. She is very, very cold. She is. It's an interesting I don't like voice. It, you know? I love it. I, I admire I her yeah. greatly, but I, I but I just don't have any love for that for her fiction at all. I tell that to people; they were gassed. <laughs> like you can't you can't think that, but it's the way it is. I'm telling you. Yeah, there's a sort of um, uh, an interesting like sort of vacuum around it, in the same way there's a sort of vacuum around Hemingway. You know, it's like either you love Hemingway or you hate Hemingway. I personally mm. hate Hemingway. But, um, but you know, it's the same thing. You know, there's a sort of austerity to the voice and the, pers- the perspective that I find really attractive in Le Guin. There's a, there's a story a by Joyce Carol Oates in this book, Wild Nights. It's a great book. It's stories about early American lit- literature writers mm. and their stories in it. She's got one in there on Hemingway, and she really kicks his ass in that story. I'm telling you, uh, I feel like it I'm was love her. it was hilarious to me. I felt sad, but it was funny. But that book is great, and it, there's a lot of like uh, speculative and dark fantasy stuff going on in it too. You know, how damaging do you think it is? Uh, so, how damaging is the idea of being a writer to writing? How much you know? Like, do you confuse yourself, get yourself in a tangle, and focus on completely irrelevant things because you're not being curious and following something, but instead you have this notion of being a writer and having rules and all these other kind of things. The only reason, the only way that goes bad, because I do these autobiographical, well, sem, you know, quote unquote mm-hmm. autobiographical stories that I started doing. I got the idea from Isaac Bashevis Singer, his stories, mm-hmm. his supernatural stories that take place in New York after he, he emigrates from Poland. And, uh, and what I noticed about him is if you want to pull this off, like you're the writer, again, this is one of those things that you just really got, you can't blink. You yeah. just got to say, like, look, I'm, it was this day, I was writing a story, I went downtown to get cigarettes and a coffee, and I passed this place that had a sign outside that said, word dolls. You know what I mean? So if, it's only a problem if you don't go all the way. Right. You know, if you, if you, if you try to, like, if you hem and haw about the fact or that you're, you're going to be a writer in yeah. your story, are you thinking about that? That's the only time it becomes a problem, mm. I, I find, you know? I mean, thinking about, like, I do think that um, how we define ourselves as writers gets in the way of our writing sometimes. And usually it's because we are insincere about our understanding of our motives. Because it's very shaming when you say, but why are you really writing? And I'm always mm. talking to students and saying, you know, it's like, why are you writing? They're like, oh, I want to be a writer. I want to, you know, I read this book. It meant, meant a lot to me. I want to change the world. You know, they all have all of these answers. And I'm like, 
Okay, so let's take one step farther. Why? And I give them the example that my first reason for writing had nothing to do with creative expression or anything else. It had to do with the fact that, that my mother loved books more than she loved her children. And mm. so I wrote because that was the only thing I had ever seen my mom look at with interest. And it took me a long time to acknowledge that and say, that's why I write. Um, and as soon as I did, my writing got easier. Before that, I was like, oh, I want to be successful. It's like, no, what you want is to, to be valid enough to be seen by your mother's eyes. And as soon as I realized that, that stopped being the reason I wrote. Um, so the more you understand your motives, your personal, you know, the little seamy thing on the inside, I want to pick up you know, hot people, whatever the, the reason is, I want, I want to feel like I've earned my air, I want my parents to love me, whatever it mm -hmm. is, the deeper you go, the more likely you are to be able to separate the process of writing from the secret agenda of your writing. It's <laughs> very interesting, yeah. And it changed everything. I mean, I really could not believe it. The day I made that decision, the next day I started writing wow. a story I was very proud of. But it's weird. <laughs> it seems to me that because we have to be out of here in about five, 10 minutes, I think, hmm that it might be worth throwing it to the audience or I'll give you a moment to have a think about if there are any questions that you have uh, on the, the, the topic about you know, writing short stories, narrative, that kind of thing. Uh, we'll throw it out to you a second. We're actually supposed to be done in about three or four minutes. Three minutes, really? so be quick. Yeah, okay. well, well, think so quickly. six word answers. Think, think quickly, ask quickly. You've got like a moment. I'm like, Kelly. Who says it can't be yeah, taught? Yeah, it can be taught. <laughs> it's just not easy. Insecurity. Can't. Why can't you teach it, you know? And we talk about it all the time because that's part of the teaching process is we each find our truth as we listen to other people talk about it and say, that's for me, that's not, I disagree, that person's full of shit. You know, it's like we all, that's one of the ways we learn is by watching other people and the modeling what they tell us mm. and seeing whether we, whether it fits our experience or not. I have this argument with my son all the time as a <laughs> painter and he, I tell him like, you know, I had, I've had kids in class who, who just had it, you know I mean? They just mm. had talent. He goes, I don't believe in that. He said, that's from work. That's because they worked on it, you know? So he doesn't buy that there's innate talent. He, he only buys that there's, that, there's, that there's insight and work, you know, uh, that'll get you there. I'm, I'm halfway there. See, what I kind of think is you can teach craft, but you can't teach that other bit. Well, I feel mm -hmm. like that too sometimes. Malcolm Gladwell talks about his 10,000 hours and everything yeah. else. But when you, when you come across people who are great at something, whatever it is, like I've got friends, I think about my friend Sean Tan, who's a wonderful artist. Mm -hmm. yeah. But he would tell you he's just sat there and done this hour after hour, day after day, month after month, year after year <laughs> until he developed yeah. skills. However, the thing is, the thing that makes his art great isn't that he sat there hour after hour, month after month, year after year. It's that other little thing that made it well, his. Well, that he kept improving. So, so I mean, to my mind, that's the thing. It's like hour after hour is fine, but you know, I know a lot of people who write fan fiction who are no better than they were 20 years ago. The mm -hmm. trick is, do you, keep ex do you keep examining yourself? Do you keep examining your work and saying, what would make this better? And some people are happy with, you know, whatever level of writing they're at. And some people are very successful at that level. You know, so in my you mind, can. that is part of it. You don't, talent is, is actually honesty is self-awareness and honesty, to my mind. You need somebody, too, who, who, who doesn't get put off by being wrong or writing a bad story. I mean, when I started working with Gardner, I was dumb as a sack of shit. I mean, really. And, and he showed me a bunch of stuff. I don't think he made me a writer, but he showed me a bunch of stuff, talked to me about writing and ways to think about it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But I, when I went there, I was a clamor. 
you know, I, I was writing stories, but they were lousy. And, uh, it, you know, um, I never got put off, by, though, by people when people said this is wrong or you need to mm-hmm. change this. I just opened myself up to these mm-hmm. teachers and listened to them, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. and I took what I thought would work. And then I learned later some of it I wanted to keep and some of it didn't. Yep. But you can't be put off by failure. Failure is your friend in a lot of ways. Well, you were lucky you know? to have, you were to have good editors, yeah. too. I yeah. think yeah. that's an issue. Well, editors, yeah. Oh, that's, my, that's my advice to writers. Always work with good editors. <laughs> so, yeah. There's a famous story about H.L. Gold, the editor of Galaxy Magazine, who had a reputation for as... I forgot who said this to me. He had a reputation for being able to take a mediocre story and turn it into a pretty good story. But he also <laughs> had a reputation for taking a great story and turning it into a pretty good story. <laughs> yep. Uh, so editors can work both ways. Yeah. But we, we are out of time. We are out, we of, are time. out of time. So I think that means that what we need to do is to thank our special guest, Jeffrey Ford. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I had a great time. I appreciate <laughs> it. Good seeing you guys. So all and, of you. And Kids Johnson. It's always fun. I'll just do this as many times as you ask me. <laughs> and to say that against all good, good judgment, this has been the Cood Street Podcast. And thank you very much, everybody. Right. Perfect timing. It was fun. Yeah, I appreciate it. No.